Hello, everyone. My name is Kanai Kapadia. I'm the president and chief analyst of KGK and Company. KGK is a strategic management consultancy that helps middle market companies align with their best growth opportunities, overcome their more challenging operational frustrations, and ultimately to grow their earnings. If you're intrigued by the idea of a firm that wants to be a profit center rather than a cost center, for your business. Use the link in the show notes to connect with me. I'd like to welcome Stel Velavanis, CEO of Onshore Security, to the show today. Stel, you've run Onshore Security for almost 30 years, according to the calculus here of your background on LinkedIn. Can you talk a little bit about what your original motivations were in, in starting the company? You know, I was only five years old at the time, so that makes me, you know, just in my mid-30s, of course. But hey, I wasn't my first rodeo. I did start very young. My first company, actually, I was 15 years old. Yeah, I was definitely a bit older starting Onshore Security. Onshore Security did not start as Onshore Security. It started as Onshore, eventually going through a shift and being called Onshore Networks, spinning off a software development business, and then Onshore Networks uh, uh, rebranded as Onshore Security and then they've done the finally company split as Entre Networks. I do actually have a sister company, Entre Networks now. Its origin was, I think, the most interesting in that having already had started some business as a very young person, it was really the first business I started, A, without partners, B, without a business plan. You're not supposed to do that, right? I mean, I've had some other successes and there are stories to be told there and companies out there that have my name on them in uh, well-placed and early points in their existence. This was truly the like, opportunistic, here's all this out there, don't know really you know, what the market exactly wants kind of thing. It's very origin is software development. That's really was it. Like, I, you know, hey, I'm, I've been writing software already for a while. Let me do this more as a business. And that quickly became doing more infrastructure for people as well. When you say software development, to be perfectly honest, I don't know what software development looked like 30 years ago. How does it relate to, to infrastructure networking? Was it the layer on top of the hardware that you guys started with and then you actually started doing the network deployments themselves? You know, the applications then were business either single desktop or LAN-based business applications. So we're talking about you know, database-driven things like formatting purchase orders and containing assets for moving, in one case was some kind of like a facility for furniture moving around. It was a, a University of Chicago client, like a, a student union type of setup. You know, where, how many chairs do we have and what rooms do they go in and when and things like many different kinds of business applications. Quickly, by 93, with beta versions of the Linux kernel, we were building websites. We were building web applications, which, as you can imagine, the early stuff's brochureware. But it quickly moved into larger and larger business applications. You mentioned you sold uh, the networking portion of the business. When did you exit that business? So I exited the software development business. The partners and I, there were six of us at the time, and we parted ways three and three. There was an acquirer, a public company that early in the year, early in 2000, had an offer out to us that was really a, a great offer, but it was all stock. And right as we were getting ready to close, the stock market crashed and we ran away. 
months later, we looked at our opportunities for growth and they were more and more divergent, meaning the network and infrastructure side versus the software development side. And I went with the network side. We had a great arrangement with the School of the Arts in Chicago. We had developed software for them for asset management and all you know, web-based. The deal with them was that we had the license to reuse it and sell it to others with some revenue share with them. And that became the basis for the software development business spin out, I'll call it. So I did not retain ownership of that. I made a different deal where I would help finance and keep more of the equity in the network infrastructure side, which was great. And they've done really well for themselves and sold it to a big brand about three, four years ago. But yes, yeah, so the network infrastructure side quickly added a whole other important component. That was internet service provider. We'd already been reselling other kinds of internet connectivity and became facilities-based that same year in 2000. A lot of craziness that year. Cost me a marriage too, I'll tell you that. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Interesting. We'll come back to that. Just in terms of lessons learned from a leadership standpoint, that sort of thing. But going back to the beginning, really, you mentioned that this was the first company you started without partners and a business plan. Why did that make sense to you at the time? I don't think it made sense. I think I just did it. I was working for the University of Chicago at the time. I was working for the what was called the GSB then. Today it's called the Booth School. I kind of had some varied responsibilities. I think my title was officially network analyst. And there were departments that either you know, needed help, most notably the publications department had these vendors that they work with that we had in Iraq with that were, I don't want to say clueless, but whatever, struggling with technology. And sometimes it made more sense than me go there and try to fix their problems and figure out what they needed. In some cases, it was some simple automation or how to use tools or whatever. I actually taught Photoshop for a short while around then too. I have a whole other, let's say, you know, side of my brain on media and art. I just saw those opportunities and I decided... Let me go. I freelance on the side, moonlight, so to speak. They didn't have an issue with that at the university. I did go and inquire, and I just kept looking for opportunities. A few years before that, before I worked for the GSB, I had started you know, a company before that, and that company was called Solved. That was to build applications and otherwise build infrastructure, whatnot, for whomever. And there was with partners and with a business plan and you know, thought out. So it's not like I didn't already have a model in my head of how it would work. So I, I pretty much adopted that kinds of services and model I would do there, but I just but I was doing it as a freelancer. And six months later, I started giving it a name. So if you want to be more formal, 92 would probably be our founding year than 91. But 91, you know, was really the origin of the work. Why onshore? What's in the name? You really want that story? Okay. Well, I love the connotation of onshore versus offshore. That is definitely appropriate today and has been for a while, but it is not the origin story. The origin story is literally my phone number. My home phone number, which also then you know became the business owner for many years till we moved, got an office in the you know West Town, was O N S H O R E. And so the number three <laughs> predates the business. And everybody knew where I lived as onshore. And if you know we're having a party that's hey, the party's at onshore, everybody knew where that was. And I did that deliberately to make sure that I could just hand people phone numbers and them having to write it down. Yeah. yeah that's funny. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
coming to that juncture where the software development business was spun off and, and sold and you stuck with the network and infrastructure business. What was your decision-making process in that? As you can imagine, you know, the 90s, you know, as much as we talk about how crazy things are now and all this change, all this growth, I really, the 90s, I think, stand out more in like a sea change. It's like people can see the future now better than they could see the future in the 90s. I don't know if, if you agree with that. And I don't know how many people agree with that. But I really feel that way. Having lived it, I was spending mindshare trying to think about and how to convey the amazing you know, world we have ahead of us with technology. We still didn't quite understand why they need to have a computer, their work desktop, let alone at home, you know, whatnot. Things like PDAs, right? It was a PDA back then. Now it's that standard built in your phone, you know, and personal digital assistant. I don't know yeah, if you're old enough to know, know that term. <laughs> we had, you know, Apple Newtons and the Palm Pilot, yeah. right? So us technologists saw this stuff and we're just trying, beating everybody else, trying to, you know, beating everybody, trying to get them to understand these things. And so as you got to the late 90s, we were getting bigger and bigger clients, you know, and that formed the basis for today. I'm talking about First National Bank of Chicago, Motorola, Commonwealth Edison, Arthur Anderson. Arthur Anderson probably never admit it, but fumbled at getting their first website out. And it came over to us at the 11th hour. And I had, you know, three people cranking all night, putting that out. And then people in the finance world, in commodities brokers and stock brokers, we had some very significant clients then, Regal, and Lynn Waldock was now Revco. And so by the end of the 90s, we're not just writing software for them. We're building custom firewalls. I mean, you, wish, you couldn't get a good equipment like that off the shelf. When 2000 came up and my partners and I thinking we need to diverge, I mean, I looked at the potential of what to do with network architecture and being the enabler that I was. I said, look, today, guys, People already get that they need to write software for this and that. And yes, there's a whole kind of new world going to happen with what we called ASP then, application service providing. Today, mm -hmm. you call it the cloud. And as exciting as that was, I said, look, you know, it doesn't mean anything if I can't get people you know, connected. Believe me when I say this, and this is true to this day, that as much as we talk about the shortage of talent in software development and whatnot, the truth of the matter is it's worse in the network world. Good network engineers that know what they're doing are hard to come by. And there's a reason for that. You know, you go in a, whatever, a kindergarten these days. I, you know, my little seven-year-old is cranking away code and in a classroom, well, you know, whatever basic stuff, obviously. How the hell are they going to teach infrastructure and, you know, routing tables and how DNS works and things like that? It's a very hard to pick up those skills on your own. I say harder than, say, software development is for sure. And certainly the paths that are touted, you know, the examples, the role models, you know, the direction, they're much more about software development. They're about entrepreneurship too. It's all great. But really the network stuff is hard and it's complex. And I like hard problems. I like to solve foundational kind of hard problems and building a network business, which we already had been doing through, especially the late nineties as it dovetailed towards that really made a ton of sense. I felt I could build a bigger business. And I did build a bigger business, to be honest with you, than, than those guys. Yeah. I mean, we both went after enterprise clients, which was awesome and successfully so. As they became an ISV, they focused on higher ed. That's awesome. Wonderful. I would have invested in that company if I was liquid at the time. But really, the growth was there for infrastructure. Another aspect that's important to note from like a, just an entrepreneurship perspective is I was really beginning to understand valuation. And and it's very hard to build a recurring, especially in those days, a build a recurring services model on software development. It's feast or famine. 
you certainly could say you do things like, hey, I'm going to build software for you, but I'm going to run on my platform. Many people attempted that, and there's certainly successful ones now, you know, like web hosts that give you tools. And the, the more you go upstream, I think the less the case is. You might be a component, you might be an ISV or just a software publisher, so you're not custom developing. But yeah, for the most part, this is true today. And, you know, on the network side, yeah, there's, you know, internal IT department, that's great, whatnot, but there's lots and lots of recurring service outsourcing on the network side. You know, we did add like a server workstation component, and that brought us into an SMB space. But then that we ended up shedding in 2014 when we did the pivot to cybersecurity. What comes to mind for me is you talk about how the 90s was this era where the business world was still trying to figure out what's the role of technology in our future. And now they get it. And so it's a more integral part of it. Is there an analog to that in the security world that you see? Meaning up until a certain point in history, sure, there was an understanding of the importance of cybersecurity, but there was this, oh my God, moment moment or period where now it's ubiquitously understood as critical? Yeah, in the 90s, you know, we were very aware of cybercrime as it existed then and hackers, so to speak. I think hackers actually more, was more applicable in the 90s than it is today. I really wish we just call them cyber criminals or just criminals. There might be a point. I just had a great talk with a criminology expert about how we were not far off from using criminals and non-cyber criminals as the distinction because, you know, almost everything being really related to cybercrime. In the 90s, it was a joke. In the 90s, us techie people, we took security seriously. You know, when we were managing these, you know, larger and larger networks, especially once we launched the ISP business in 2000, we really had to do a lot of things, things that even to this day, enterprises don't quite understand. And that's, you know, monitoring and detection and whatnot, that kind of like auditably secure kind of thing. The repercussions of cybercrime were really more about the kind of embarrassment and the kind of shame of it, perhaps not really too much, maybe some intellectual property theft, that would have been kind of the worst of it. But definitely, there weren't ways to monetize it. And I don't want to completely put it on cryptocurrency. But that's a very big reason we have much more monetization of cybercrime than we used to in the past. So in the 90s, it was literally funny. When like some kid got into something and network and defaced their website or something. I mean, that would go to late 90s. But even before that, just to, you know, get into their network. I won't talk about things that I or other people I knew did. I'll just leave it as that we were very aware of all this and knew what to do and frankly employed the people that were very much part of the whole, that whole community. And Black Hat and White Hat were more intertwined as a result. And as you would expect, really. So the 2000s, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that's very astute that today it is this kind of contrasting awareness with what there was in the 90s. I mean, I would call us sitting ducks now. What would be the term you'd use in the 90s? I mean, practically completely open networks, you know, the keys sitting there, you know, not just on the seat of the car, but, you know, on a bright light pointing at them. I don't know. I should say it less jokingly because it's, I would say today it is the major disabler of organizations. Again, the major disabler of organizations today, I would say, is cybercrime and or the threat of it. Let's talk about the business of cybersecurity. So Onshore Security is a managed services provider 
for cybersecurity, right? Can you talk about what it takes to succeed in that marketplace today? It's actually very, very competitive. And I would say that's the kind of the, you know, the biggest obstacle really is even though the market's big and growing, there's a lot of competition out there, not as much as there is on the infrastructure side. While the market's still growing, I think proportionally, it's very high. The driver for the market is not cybersecurity maturity. I shouldn't say that, at least not the primary driver isn't. It might be number two, number three. The primary driver is compliance. And compliance is slow and coming. So other than us having to face competition and differentiate, our next challenge isn't so much about gaining relevance. It's about acutely addressing the compliance, you know, such that the buyers that are there are aligned. And we're aligned rather, you know, our positioning is aligned, you know, with the buyers. I wish it weren't like that. I don't know of other industries that really work that way. Certainly was not like that in infrastructure. In infrastructure, it was about top line. It was about growing, improving, yeah, yeah, growing companies, growing, improving their revenue, general capability, their scale, their operational acumen. The cybersecurity, it's kind of like insurance. So it's not about success or failure. It's not about a cybercrime being a disabler or hurting your commercial prospects. It's about what you're being told you have to do to protect your customers, employees, et cetera, as data. At least as a primary driver, I'm probably discounting it a little too much to say that security maturity is not a driver. It just drops down on the list pretty severely when you realize how much compliance is. You know, compliance comes in the form of government, industry. I mean, one of the most successful compliance actually is PCI DSS. Think about it. That's completely industry driven. Now, why is that a great driver? Well, because the payment part industry and the association needs to keep public trust. It's you know very, very valuable for them to have high public trust. And by the way, take note, they hold the bag. When there's fraud in credit cards, whatnot, the merchant and the credit card processing company, not the processor, but you know, the carrier, whatever you know, call the payment provider, they carry out that risk. And so, you know, they have incentive to do this right and they put out the requirements and they're very strict about it. The amounts that you pay, the rates you pay, and what even the ability to sign up for services, merchant services, are affected by your compliance to their standards called DSS. And don't get me wrong, I love to see government, insurance companies, whatever, jump in and provide the pressure too. Uh, But it's notable that one of the most successful ones is an industry regulation. With... The fiercely competitive environment for cybersecurity providers, the phenomenal growth rate notwithstanding, how have you rationalized what Onshore's position is is today and will be going forward in order to succeed in that environment? I am placing a bet. My bet is based on the premise that, let's say, the mid-market SME space, and definitely some into enterprise, is going to want to, for various reasons, outsource more and more of their detection and SOC-related services. The enterprise currently isn't, for the most part, and the mid-market is more so, and in many cases, just aren't doing much there. I am predicting that's going to bust really wide open. I just don't see another way that it could work. There are many segments I could go after and position ourselves for, but we just play so well in that segment. 
when I was at the crossroads a few times, every step of the way kept more narrowly, more narrowly guiding me there. Can you expand on why you feel it's such a good fit? Remember, you know, I said compliance is the driver, right? Or at least the primary driver, and I'd say heavily so. The kinds of things that drive compliance, other than like political will and whatnot, are, you know, larger kind of, let's say, you know, economic factors. So cybersecurity getting bigger is the obvious one. The dollars are out there on the news feeds all over the place about X cost and whatnot. Cyber insurance is getting more mature too. They're making, you know, more and more demands. And all of these have thresholds. All of these have, you know, the bigger the company is, the stricter it's going to be. In the financial world where we played more, the banking world's been ahead of the game a good bit. Um, there's notable regulations like the New York DFS requiring a named CISO. That's not true in every state. And there's things like that that tell me that combined with the financial reality, which isn't enough, you know, the, the, you know, the pressure coming from compliance, and it's going to be industry, there's going to be more. Government's been especially slow. We all know the reason for that. They're, they're really political more than anything. And I'm not talking about surveillance. I'm talking about standards. I mean, think about it right now. If you're sued in some way, you know, whatever, the big Facebook league or something, what kind of damages can you claim because your data got breached? Now, if they're negligent, what does negligent mean? They didn't meet a specific standard that they're required to meet by whatever body. You know, that could be even if it was industry, but but definitely if it was government or insurance. Now, you know, claims, you know, don't accept it. Lawsuits become, you know, class action lawsuits. I mean, this is where the teeth, you know, come in. And by the way, even in the banking space, regulators, you know, we have to interact with regulators. We have to provide them data. Regulators aren't necessarily jumping for joy about more specific regulations because that makes their jobs hard too. They like to have a little bit of control of that. I'm talking about bank regulators. That's okay. There's not necessarily something wrong with it, but it leaves a lot of exposure and in some cases makes it hard to you know, really make a point about the exposure, the, the, the harm, damages that were done, who's really liable, if their negligence occurred or not. So they can't keep doing that. I think they'll know it. And I think the political climate is slowly changing there. The solar winds attack helped. I hate to say that because it was a bad thing. But it helped in the terms of providing a lot more clarity, I would say, directly to government, which was definitely, you know, a big part of the tax surface. You know, we need to put standards in place where you need to have compliance. The the isn't messing around. They put out CMMC last year. That's a standard they put out. And you can't do business with them if you don't comply to certain levels of it. I see all those things coming. I see the financial pressure has already been there and is growing. And I think these will conspire to open up and it'll come from top down. Enterprise will choose to solve it more and more on their own. I mean, I shouldn't say more and more on their own, but continue to solve that more so on their own. And as soon as you go, you start going down from there into the mid market, you know, into tens of thousands of employees and then down to the few thousand employees. I think they're just going to see it much more clearly that outsourcing might also give them some kind of a degree of removal too. If there's accountability needed, it depends on what the compliance pressure is for them. If it's government versus insurance, let's say. Now you made mention of cryptocurrency fueling the monetization of cybercrime. Um, I can assume why that's the case, but can you expand on that? If you can't hide, you can't steal. It's not totally anonymous. The ledgers are public and there's definitely some effort to leverage that, but there are actually now all these anonymizers too for cryptocurrency where you know they split a transaction into a thousand or something and 
move around all kinds of wallets. But that said, up until now, it's really been anonymous, anonymous enough, certainly for it to be the choice for criminals. Now we have a whole other layer that is with reach as well as anonymity. And that is because of our tradition, you know, treaties and our bank, you know, privacy laws. And honestly, they're just all flawed. But they still needed that vehicle. I mean, we didn't quite have the cybercrime for it. And I'm not, you know, I'm saying this in the context of the internet as we know it didn't exist before. That did not really thwart, you know, the cyber criminals. If we had something along the lines of cryptocurrency in the nineties, we would have seen a lot more cybercrime and cybercrime being monetized. And it would have been, you know, the whatever, the US based whatever hackers, pirates, as well as the overseas organized crime version of it, et cetera, it would have been had a lot of the same kind of face to it. So yeah, I really do blame it a lot. You need a way to hide your winnings. Returning back to cybersecurity, how are you positioning onshore to succeed? And I mean, arguably banking and financial services is one of probably the most attractive markets, right? For cybersecurity services because of the exposure. But how are you positioning the company for success? First of all, we do have proprietary tech. That is not typical in our space. Most people who do what you would call an MDR service or a SOC as a service, MDR stands for Managed Detection Response for the listener, using some off-the-shelf package or a client's premise or hosted system and doing their detection and analysis work there. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, you do lack flexibility. You are forced to follow the licensing model of those tools you're using. And that gets difficult as you get more mature and develop what I would call a platform versus a tool where you're using a mix of things. You're forced down a certain stack. All of these have, you know, different, again, licensing models. And someone is like event per event based pricing, one's storage based pricing, one's seat based pricing to be, give you kind of good obvious examples, those things. And then of course, you're stuck to you know what they can ingest and how they manage that data over time as the companies out there, our competitors mature, because we're early in the space. We're really a, a part of a very short list of people who've been doing something like this you know, for more than a decade. Every time we're at that fork of the road, we think about it, what's the advantages and disadvantages of developing some of our own software? Now that said, we use tons of open source. It's not like we're writing everything from scratch. So when I'm asked, gee, how do you compete with you know that company who has whatever, 100 developers or something. I said, well, I have 10,000 developers. You know, We always look at it and we find that flexibility, that power, the tool building for the analyst rather than for the customer. You know, I'll reemphasize that because the software that you're going to buy, VC-backed, you know, whatnot, great. They build great, great stuff. But their customer is that enterprise user. Almost across the board, the proportion of software in the cybersecurity space that's built for the let's call it, you know, the enterprise or even, you know, smaller end user, it dwarfs the tools that are built for the service provider. And evidence of it too is how many times we look at tools to use as a service provider. And one of our big obstacles is they're not properly multi-tenanted. They're not properly authentication methods aren't, you know, advanced. Some of them like hosted only, and we would rather run on, on-prem, our own co-location. That's the market. That's who they need to sell to. So they matter to make the tool that's going to look prettier. It's going to do some kind of, let's say, you know, high value, but dumbed down kind of things, high level kind of reporting. And they frankly, they're probably better at us at those things. But we build tools for our analysts. 
So when we're coming up with a way to automate something or not, it's because not only want to reduce the analyst work, which is so much the mantra in the cybersecurity software, oh, it's more automated, your people. I'm sorry, there is a fire hose of data coming at you all day, every day. Of course, you're going to find ways to minimize that, but you're not going to reduce the people. So what do I do then? I'm going to build tools for that analyst to be able to quickly pivot between their different research and investigation methods, ways for them to quickly tag, target, and pass on, generate tickets, things like that, get actionable data to the end user. As far as the reporting goes, we're just going to customize for the client. Yes, that's a heavy burden. Yes, that is takes work and onboarding, and there's tweaking involved. But it's then tuned to who we're answering to. Some places where reports are getting to IT director type versus a CISO, sometimes our reports are getting into the C-suite. So we'll, we'll develop things for that C-suite. It's not as canned and off the shelf. So that's a very big differentiator for us. Another important one, too, is that we built our own sensor. Now, now most of the people who do what we do focus on the SIM, the Security Incident Event Manager, which is the place where you contain your data and you do your reporting on it. But when you're diving deep and you're doing threat hunting, you really want to build rules that get applied right at that point where those data sets come together. And that's our on-site data collector and sensor. I'd be geeking out on the tech stuff more if I went down that path. It's an important differentiator. We have different architecture for most people out there, and we've been doing it a long time. We'll probably have a lot more intelligence on the network as opposed to you know the host data where most people have focused in uh, more recent times. I think for the average listener, it would be beneficial to understand some of these distinctions. So sensing is seeing the event, right? Something that happened that maybe should or shouldn't be happening. And the SIM is taking all of these scenarios, of which there are a lot of, the fire hose you were speaking of, and it's assessing, is this real or is this problematic? And does it require increasing levels of escalation? Exactly. So by building some of your own technology and having your own sensing, what net benefit does a customer see as a result of that? The main thing that they gain from is that now we have what I would call the highest the degree of telemetry visibility. So we don't have gaps. We don't have points on the network where we don't know what's going on in the you know, that's notably in the data sources. So it's not quite the right answer to the best answer to your question. If you don't have the, let's say, that packet capture data, even if you've got encrypted, you know, packets, you're still looking at, you know, the headers of the data and the flow. If you don't have the activity coming from network devices and correlating that against the activity you have from the endpoints, which is what most people focus on. In fact, most people focus on just completely system logs, there's also you know, activity on the end user devices and, and server devices. Many people orphan their endpoint protection systems. They let that stand alone and don't bring that into telemetry. If you don't bring all those things together, then you have gaps. And there's activity that goes on in the network that is identifiable activity, that is definitely activity that needs to be analyzed, that would allow you to identify specifically an APT earlier on. Advanced persistent threat. Those are people that get into your network slowly but surely, build a beachhead and start growing in their, you know, finding more and more attack surface, finding assets. To this day, the stats out there are on the order of you know, 100 days, sometimes 200 days APT threat. So security is not this like 
bat phone or, you know, jump on the pole and slide and get into the truck. Security is much more like accounting. So, but here's the thing though, that sounds a little bit contrary to the urgency I expressed about getting this data analyzed at the central level. And the reason why it is, is because, well, we're doing accounting, but we're doing accounting from a fire hose. So if I go too long and I don't look at things going on, I miss that whole window. I literally- Yeah, you don't know if you're on day one or day 200. That's right. You know how much time my analysts spend going back on data? So our our lowest level, our entry level, we do six months data retention. Most of our clients are on 12-month data retention. And our very highest end clients, we also burn optical disks. So they have forever retention. When I say data retention, I'm talking about you know all logs, system logs, network logs, protection system logs, and then packet captures down to tag packet captures. So not full packet captures. The full packet capture buffers can go back you know, a couple of days. But there you go. If I close my eyes for a couple of days and I did not tag those packets, packets that the automated systems didn't get, I lose that. So let's say I might keep my NetFlow data so I can still tell get some idea of the session. I cannot tell you how many times, pretty much every day, that an analyst is looking at an event realizing they need to dig in a, a bit. And what are they doing? They're looking at past data that the whole, they want to look at the whole session, replay that session, find out how it originated. And they're often pivoting to other sessions from there. Now, if they go back an hour, two hours, three hours, depending on that buffer size, some of these sensors have a few terabytes and that only gives them a few hours in some network environments. Other ones give them a couple of days. They're often going back and saying, okay, great. I don't have the data going back on this. I want to create now a rule for me to capture that kind of activity because it might happen again. And most of the time, what they're doing is they're creating a model for anomaly detection because statistically, the threats themselves are zero. I mean, if you want to look at threats, you look at the protection systems and we take that log data too. A lot of people surprisingly ignore that data. They think, what's so useful about a firewall log that all it shows that things got blocked? Well, I want to report on that. Yes, I'll be more automated about that. Let me look at trending over time and aggregation, whatnot. But that matters because an APT might show early signs of attempts there. How do I know that without having that data to correlate against? Well, this event now happened inside. Maybe that's related. Let me look at the protection data. You know, was, was somebody trying to hit that port in the past? Oh, look at this. Here's what, you know, it was a scan going on. Sure, we detected it and we logged it. But it was on the outside and it was blocked. So we didn't really care about doing something. But now that data matters. You get in the weed pretty quickly when you start thinking about all the ways that this data and any little gap can really hurt you. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the, the understanding the detail behind this is important because the devil's in the detail. Commercially, one of the challenges has to be that as a the emerging big brand in cybersecurity, it's tough to compare across vendors, your sensing capability versus someone else's, for example. Have you cracked that nut in terms of a way to quantify it and show apples for apples, here's what you get versus? I wish I could say so, but the answer is no. You know, we do, I think, a decent job differentiating ourselves in our literature or whatnot, but it doesn't come into play that much. Most of the sales opportunities, they're not I say competition is a big factor. I have to admit, you know, most of the sales opportunities are a little, they kind of come up warm. You know, they start warm. They're either a referral or they quickly get to a kind of reference. And that becomes that highest value. So yes, we're up against competitors. And yes, they're talking to a lot, a lot of people. 
but it's not the differentiation with them that becomes the selling point. We do demos. They love it. They want to meet the people. They're going to interact with them a good bit. And frankly, if somebody wants to see us as like an automated service where the person they're responding with is a new name every day or is anonymous, they're not going to find that in us. And frankly, they're probably going to save money. So yeah, once we get through that, that kind of validation on that customer, it really comes about, do I like these people? Can I establish a rapport with them? Every time we get compared on the whole checklist, we compare extremely favorably. The cases where I've lost have been against a big brand name. Was there you know, real comparison there? Not really. Not really. Our differentiation then doesn't play in kind of in either case yeah. too much. I, yeah. you know. they're, they're following brand, so to speak. At that I can tell you very specific cases too. I don't know if that should be recorded though. But. What's your vision for Onshore given the path that you're on? Great thing, very fortunately, that this kind of service in cybersecurity is lucrative. That helps a lot. You know, I don't have this, you know, gun to my head about making sure I, you know, fix this or that. I can go and follow the market. We can build, you know, whatever we think, you know, it makes sense or that, you know, the market wants to buy. You know, we're not the biggest provider out there, so we don't have the marketing budgets that, you know, some other people have. But the truth of the matter is that as the market grows, Without having to really put too much effort into it, things come to us, people look to us, people refer us, and I think there's just tons of growth right there, just organically. That said, there's a very good chance that there's consolidation in the space. I mean, there has been a bunch already, more at the people who play in the SMB space, to be honest with you, not as much in the people who play into the enterprise space, you know, like us, but I expect that to happen too. Talent is often pointed out as a challenge in cybersecurity, right? Demand's higher than supply. How are you guys overcoming that? So we have a little bit of an advantage, certainly over the internal departments. Our competitors, you know, would have at least this advantage too, in that their people want to work for a cybersecurity company. You know, they even same dollars, maybe even for less dollars, they want to work for a cybersecurity brand that's very important to them as technologists. Then the second part is that this is actually something that we do have even, you know, an advantage against our competitors that, again, that we develop our own platform. And now we can develop our platform to the analyst, to the engineer, and that allows us to tier our teams in ways that we control. We are very successful at what I would call growing people. We have hired a number of analysts with just the right skills in positions where they are highly valuable to us, but yet are not at that, let's say, security engineer level or hire an analyst, and, and we grow them. And I think our competitors struggle with that. They're stuck with you know getting people who either know certain tools or have a wide breadth. And a lot of our competitors do lead with consulting too, and consulting is, is uh, much tougher to hire for. So yeah, we have a few advantages there. Again, our platform, our proprietariness helps us. What have been some of the things, the directions you've gone in that ultimately didn't work out for the business or for you personally? So in the 2010, we sold what we called the MDN business, which was a multi-tenant ISP. There's many, you know, high-rise buildings, ISP, internet, telephone, television. I really enjoyed building that business. I enjoyed running it. It was great to provide internet speeds residences primarily. There were a few commercial ones actually, but we lit 63 buildings and you know to provide them internet speeds that literally were not commercially available to them otherwise. 
that's exciting. That's fun. And I admit that I look a lot for that in my business directions. Quickly, the writing got on the wall there that the big providers were going to catch up. I mean, look at today. People have, what, 100 megabit per second at their houses, like it's nothing. So I had to see the writing on the wall on that and exit that business at a pretty good time in 2010. So yeah, so that's one lesson there as far as things I had to move on from. And this one's a more of a regret. This might be an interesting story for you. Um, so one of my unfulfilled visions, and this is again related to that MDN space, that you know multi-tenant building, it's kind of something happening now too. You've heard the term edge computing. So I had a vision for what I didn't call edge computing back then. And I really wanted to see this happen both in commercial and in residential real estate. This is a time in the early 2000s you know, when you, know, you couldn't get more than a few megasecond of internet. And so I thought, well, why not bring the services to them? So think about a hotel video service where, you know, they had a, you know, a big giant store of, you know, actually was physically videotapes, you know, back in the day, now it's hard drives, right? Uh, And that's on, you know, in the hotel and we have direct wires to everybody in the unit. So we did this. We ran a pilot in one of our buildings. There's a 505 unit apartment building. And we went ahead and built a server and loaded up movies. And we provided, I think it was 40 users were part of the pilot with a set-top box so they can watch all these movies. The interface, we used the hotel software that was available for hotels. And that's not a coincidence, of course. I mean, it was really cool and fun. And you know, this is edge computing. This is something like, hey, we can apply this. We can do something nobody else really can do right now unless they control that network in the building. You couldn't really do it from the internet. You didn't have the bandwidth. And it failed failed in terms of like the results were that we shouldn't pursue this, you know, and how, why? Well, you know, the the problem was we couldn't change the movies fast enough. The difference with hotels is that the people change. So if you can't change over the people, you got to change over the movies. It just wasn't going to be viable. And there was nobody out there as a service provider that could could really help us. They were very focused on the hotel business and they couldn't provide enough because again, they didn't have to either. There were too many obstacles to to jump over. And so I put it aside, could have looked for investors, thought about that. And similarly, in the commercial space, think about it, cloud storage, no reason you can't provide that in the building when you have gigabit or even just 100 megasecond connections to inside the building that you know, are way bigger than anything you get the internet, at least back then. Now, it made a ton of sense. Backup, then shared services, whatever, email, whatnot, you can get expanded to commercial services. But the big obstacle there is we were not selling it to the commercial buildings. We lit three commercial buildings with this model. There was a term called the BLEC model, building local exchange carrier to be contrasted with CLEC, competitive local exchange carrier. The truth of the matter is the building owners were following the kind of Sam Zell model of don't provide amenities, let everybody kind of give them as bare of a box as you can, let them do everything on their own. Without me trying to argue with people smarter than me on real estate, it definitely made it hard to do things like whatever would be ultimately be a building amenity. You know, maybe that would have been worth pursuing a little stronger, but I could tell you other people that were in the, like what they would call a BLEC space really all pretty failed pretty miserably at that time too. Gillette and Cypress, and there were a few others. So did you dodge a bullet or miss the streaming media? <laughs> I'd say on the media one, I would say miss an opportunity. I don't think I was sophisticated enough at the time. If I knew then what I know now, can't everybody say that, it would have been something made sense to pursue. Look, I saw that there was huge market potential. It's just that the hurdles were significant 
Uh, I mean, look, you know, Netflix, Netflix is more brilliant, I think, than people realize. Netflix didn't kind of wake up one day and said, oh, my God, we could do this stuff on the net. They had that in mind when they were pushing out DVDs. They pushed out DVDs as the beachhead. That's the brilliant part. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hindsight. If you lead a business or are a student of business, this show is for you. Please subscribe and tune in for a new episode each week. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and this show is produced by KGK and Company, the fast emerging strategic consultancy to middle market businesses. You can find us online at www.kgkcompany.com. That's kgkcompany.com. Have a good one, folks, and I'll talk to you next week.